Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Bob Cabral of the 3-6 Winery in Sonoma on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. How are you doing this afternoon? Nice to see you. Yeah. Good to see you as well. well. Where did you grow up exactly? I grew up in the Central Valley of California, so outside of the town of Modesto, in a little town called Escalon. And my folks had 70 acres. Uh, about 30 of it, 29 of it was planted to almonds, nuts, and the other, uh, the remaining portion to wine grapes. Uh, oh, okay. There were some old uh, Carignan vines on there that were about 35 years old when my folks bought the place in 1970. And then we planted another 12 acres of Zinfandel and um, 14 or 15 acres of Barbera. It's unusual for me to speak to an American winemaker who grew up around vines. Yeah, I grew up straight from the farm, <laughs> from the farm to the winery. So how did that work? You guys made your own wine? or We did. My dad's folks were Portuguese immigrants, and they had large vineyards in the Manteca, Ripon, Escalon area that he farmed. And their home ranch was about uh, 60 acres, of which most of it was old vine Grenache. And old vine to us was, you know, 45, 50 years old. It had been, old. been around there. I think it was planted actually, you know, before my dad was born. Uh, and that's where he was raised on that particular ranch. So very familiar to him and to us growing up. So we would pick a few grapes. You know, uh, if I'm estimating now, it, it will probably would have been three quarters of a ton. And my grandfather had these large stainless steel tubs. And he'd make me bleach and clean my irrigation boots, rubber boots that came up to about my knees. And we'd rinse them off. And then we'd throw the grapes into these tubs from picking boxes and he'd have me stomp on them, you know, and we'd just mash them up. That's how we crushed it. And then he would strain it through, as I found out as I got older, it was actually my grandmother's dish towels, you know, kitchen towels. I think that's how And she'd get really mad, you know, yeah. because then she'd have to wash them all. And, you know, they were pretty uh, sticky and gooky and that kind of thing. And we'd make a, usually like one barrel of rosé. And it was actually a pretty balanced wine looking back at it. There was always a little bit of residual sugar. It was very fruity. The fermentation went pretty fast. 
not real dark in color, but, you know, a, a pretty easy drinking wine. And my grandfather didn't really add a lot of sugar or, you know, that was kind of the thing to do if you wanted to bump the alcohol up. He, he had not only, obviously, Portuguese siblings and friends, but also a lot of Italians that they sold grapes to for home winemaking. So the big thing was to, you know, add a little bit of the uh, grandma's cooking sugar from the kitchen to boost that alcohol up a little bit. And that wasn't something usually that my grandfather did. So it was a, looking back now, it was actually a pretty balanced wine. And as kids, we would dilute it down with water and, you know, he'd put it in little barrels and that was kind of what you drank for the year. You were into it. You liked it. Yeah, it was fun because I got to spend the day with my grandfather. You know, my dad would help out quite a bit, but he was really busy farming. And, you know, we had livestock and animals that we had to take care of. And there was always a lot of doctoring and you had to give animals sometimes shots in the morning and just make sure they were cared for as well. So my dad would take me over to my grandparents for these special projects, if you will. Probably kind of an adventure, like get out of the house. It was. We also, uh, he cured his own olives. Uh, my grandmother pickled everything. I mean, seriously, name a vegetable that she didn't pickle from cucumbers to peppers to cauliflower, broccoli. And she had this kind of blend of spices that she added to everything. And, you know, so I grew up eating a lot of pickled and canned vegetables that that's what you did. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a big garden close to an acre worth of uh, vegetables and, and fruit trees, which is a lot of food, if you really think about it. I mean, some of these plants make a lot of lot of food. So they were always giving food away to our uh, aunts and uncles, cousins. Uh, I grew up around a, a pretty big family. I think my grandfather was one of nine brothers and sisters, and my grandmother was something like number six of six. Where did you start to think maybe wine was your thing? What's kind of funny is back in the uh, 70s, you could get a driver's license, what they called an agricultural permit, when you were 14. And that allowed you to take crops from the fields to the processing plants. So originally, my dad had me uh, hauling almond carts after they would pick up the nuts to the hauler. So there's a, there's a husk on the outside, and it's got to go through a processing plant to get down to the shell. And then they would ship the uh, nuts in the shell to like Blue Diamond or one of the growers' co-ops. And then there they had the crackers, and they would remove the nuts from the inside. So, you know, being a kid growing up on a ranch where I drove a lot of tractors, I had motorcycles as a kid just to uh, get crazy on and have fun when I, when I didn't have to work. Um, it was a big thing to be able to get your driver's license. So I got a driver's or a permit, I should say, to be able to drive by myself to either wineries or to the almond haulers or wherever we were hauling something. So on the weekends, even in high school, my dad would have me drive sometimes the trucks to the wineries. He was delivering to Franzia, uh, Gallo, Modesto, uh, Delicato in uh, Manteca, a couple of different wineries up in Lodi. And I would uh, sit in line, and sometimes it would take eight or ten hours to get the truck dumped. They were picked in a set of doubles. These were 18-wheelers, and it was about 22 to 24 tons, so four individual containers that had anywhere from five to to six tons in it. And, you know, during that 10 hour span, you get pretty bored, you know, and then sometimes a crusher would break down or somebody's truck in front of you would break down and it would take a while to get it hauled out of the way. So uh, I would wander around the wineries and, um, you know, that smell of fermentation, uh, it just looked like a cool thing. 
And, um, you know, what we were doing in the garage was just nothing compared to these large valley wineries where they were almost like factories. And it was very fascinating to me. And my dad would take me in to see the winemakers and, you know, they'd have these big labs. There would be people in white coats. Um, when I got into high school, for whatever reason, I gravitated towards chemistry and did really well. I had a great chemistry teacher, a, a guy just fresh out of UC Davis teaching high school chemistry, and he was a home brewer himself. So he used to talk to us in terms of yeast and bacteria a lot um, as examples when he would tie together chemistry and biology. So, you know, I'm a senior in high school, and uh, we have this career day, and you're supposed to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, you know, um, I'm, I was usually trying to figure out who was going to maybe buy us some beer on Friday night. That was usually my biggest concern of the week. And uh, we're looking at different occupations, and I came across a sheet that said enology, O-E-N-O, L-O-G-Y. And I was like, well, what's, you know, I asked the career counselor, what is this? And she said, well, that's winemaking. And I was like, oh, I kind of know about that. So what's entailed on, on winemaking? And, you know, we were kind of reading through it and it described a lot of chemistry, a lot of microbiology. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty interesting stuff. And then the kicker was, uh, I said to her, so do you think you, they get weekends off? Because growing up on a ranch, you work seven days a week. And it got to the point, you know, even in high school, I really didn't like vacations because my dad always put me to work. It wasn't like I went off boating with somebody or, you know, we, we went to Hawaii. You know, we lived on a farm and it was, it was a great life, but we never took a lot of family vacations. We used to go to 4-H camp for a week in the, once a year and that was about it. So uh, she said, well, maybe, you know, I would think when they're not harvesting grapes, yeah, you'd probably get weekends off. And I was like, okay, sold. I'm, I'm, sign me up for that one. And um, it, it was kind of that simple at the time. So I applied to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, Fresno State, and UC Davis. And three schools, primarily because that's where you could have all your SATs and records sent to before you had to start paying application fees and that kind of thing. So um, I actually got accepted at all three universities, and I, I wanted to go to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo because it was right on the beach. You know, you're just up from Pismo Beach, and having grown up in the Central Valley where it was, you know, 100 during the day and then cooled down to 75 or 80 at night, the beach sounded pretty cool. <laughs> so as I investigated and I went down to an um, open house with my dad, they really didn't have an enology program. And they actually didn't even have a viticulture program at the time. This is about 1979. So that kind of bummed me out. They had a horticulture program. And I, you know, I had a good buddy that I knew from FFA that was going down there to study ornamental horticulture. And, um, you know, I thought about that maybe as a career, but decided that, you know, I'd check out UC Davis and Fresno State. So I went to UC Davis. Uh, it was an interesting school. To be honest with you, it wasn't um, real friendly. I didn't feel like um, they really cared whether I was there or not. And when we got to Fresno State, we ran into one of the department chairmen for whatever reason, maybe by luck or by chance. And he actually showed us around all day. He spent about four or five hours with us. And in the end, you know, it, it just seemed uh, like a pretty good fit. Like I said, my dad grew grapes in the uh, 70s, red wine grapes that, you know, sold for 35 to maybe $65 a ton and uh, didn't have a lot of money to send me off to school. So I had some scholarship money and, and it had saved money from projects that I had at home. And I decided to go off to Fresno State. 
And what yeah. was that like? It was a great experience for me heading off to Fresno State. I came from a high school graduating class and we were one of the larger classes. I think we had 96 kids in my class. So it was a high school of maybe 350 kids. My parents, when they knew that I was going to take off for school, encouraged me to stay in the dormitory to meet some people because I really didn't know anybody. So I moved into the dorms down there that housed about 25 or 2,800 students to a university that had with part-time and full-time, about 25,000 students. And re reminding you that Escalon had a total population of a little over 3,000 people, very rural in agriculture. So within this little kind of dense area, you had a high concentration of people. So at first, it was pretty overwhelming for me. You know, I went to one of my first chemistry classes, and there was maybe six or 700 kids in this lecture. And then we all had to kind of fight for laboratory spots because you had to take six hours of lab for like every three hours of lecture. So that was kind of interesting, not knowing the teachers. You know, I was known by my social security number. They didn't even know your name, really. And that's where I, I'm a junior. So I'm Robert John Cabral Jr. My dad is Robert John Cabral Sr. And so at home, my dad was always known as Bob and I was Robert. When I got to college and I was in the dorms, I had my first roommate. For whatever reason, they started calling me Bob. And I started signing test Bob. And, and that's kind of when I picked up the Bob. And, and it was kind of funny to, to be confusing when, when people would call to my parents' home. Sometimes they'd be looking for me and my mom would have my dad the phone. And uh, my dad had a couple of interesting uh, conversations with, with yeah. some girls that called, yeah, actually. Sure. My mom's like, who's that girl calling your father? <laughs> and I wasn't even home at the time. So then you probably make a good Seinfeld episode or something like that. So as I started uh, as a freshman, you know, I remember the first week I was there, they took, there were 13 of us that were enology majors and there were only like maybe four of us that were freshmen. And they took us right out to the vineyards, had us pick grapes, and we started making wine right away. They wanted us to go through the process and then start to connect what we were learning in our classes to what we were physically doing in the pilot winery there at Fresno State. And their theory was that you could make those mistakes and hopefully learn from those mistakes before you went out and did this commercially and somebody was paying you to do it. And there was a lot more dollars involved at that point. So, you know, we made all kinds of wines. I ventured into some fruit wines. I had a friend whose father had a packing house down near Bakersfield. And he gave us like two and a half tons of kiwi coals. And we pressed them out in a big bladder press and added some enzymes and, you know, filtered the juice. And we fermented it like we had to dilute the acid a little bit and add a little bit of sugar. But we made it into a white wine and then did these triangle tastings with uh, other classes. And I think it was about a 70% guess rate was that it was a Chenin Blanc from the Central Valley. So, you know, getting to, to go through those kinds of uh, experiences all through college, I think really did prepare me for going out into the real world. And when did that happen that you left for the real world? Well, I was actually working for a winery while I was at school, too. I worked for Bronco Wine Company. What was that like? That was awesome. I went to school with the Franzias up in Escalon, Carol Franzia, whose dad, John, was part of JFJ Bronco, John, Fred, and Joe. He was head of production, if you will. Fred Franzia kind of oversaw the marketing and strategies 
Joe, his brother, did sales, and then John was production. So my dad and mom actually had seen John and Mary Lynn at church one day and, you know, said, how's Robert doing? What's he up to? And my dad said, well, he's looking for a job, you know, while while he's going to school. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Bob. And um, John had a job. They had a plant down in Fresno. Uh, that they were leasing, and it was about an 18 million gallon facility. So they were looking for someone to uh, check fields, and that's how I I got a job just checking grape fields for the first couple years. And then after I was done, they were done bringing grapes in to kind of finish out the semester. They would let me work in the cellar, so I would haul hoses around, clean tanks, clean equipment, yeah, all the glamorous stuff that you know winemaking is all about. But that's cool that you were out in the vines checking sugars and stuff. I mean, absolutely. I learned a lot about uh, just how grapes grow from Modesto to Bakersfield. It was a very large area. And you looked at vine physiology, you looked at uh, spray programs, pesticide programs, fungicide programs, when people irrigated, why they irrigated, how they irrigated. And it all made a difference in the quality of grapes that they were producing. So it was a really kind of on the, on the job education. And that's for a, four years while I met at school, and then I could ask my professors questions as I was was out there. If it didn't make sense to you, you could just go back to the class and ask them. Yeah, and I was very active in the viticulture um, club, and so I had a lot of friends that were um, viticulture majors, and and we talked a lot about growing grapes and how do you prune them and how do you take care of them, and and I had grown up doing a lot of that, and was like, well, you know, my dad used to do this, and then they go, well, we used to do that, and you just. I'm not sure that there's a, a lot of right ways to grow grapes, but there's definitely wrong ways. And, and I've seen that equate into winemaking as well. I'm not sure that there's a lot of right ways. I think people, varying winemakers, have visions of what they want in that glass. But, um, you know, you can definitely make some wrong turns and, and mess things up pretty quickly. So over the years, you just learn not to... If you think you should be going right, you go right. You don't take the chance and go left. So what was it like working for Bronco, though? I mean, so different than with your grandfather in the barn. It was fun because I was young. You know, I was 18, 19 years old, and it was my first real paying job. I basically worked for my dad and my grandfather growing up. My my dad would farm me out to the neighbors once in a while when there was some heavy equipment work to do. I Because I loved sitting on tractors. I'd sit on them 12, 14 hours a day, listen to music, and... For me, working at these large wineries was just fascinating. But after about six years, so I finished my undergraduate degree, and the winery I went to work for was called Vidal, and that was just south of Fresno in the town of Kingsburg. And that was only about an 11 million gallon facility. And I was the assistant winemaker, but we had 35 union guys, and um, I was part of management, and we had to supervise all of the activities out there. And it was basically the plant manager, an office manager, the winemaker and myself. So there were only four of us at that particular facility. And then the main facility was in Fresno. So I got a lot of good, you know, practical experience early on. And, I bet, because uh, it's all about practical, right? It is. Winemaking is learning by doing. I think much like cooking or, or any of the creative arts, I think you just have to do it and, you know, mess up a few times and, and correct your mistakes and figure out what direction you really want to go. So what was Fred Franzia like? I mean, he's kind of a legendary figure for... Fred was, a. to be honest with you, I, I had a great rapport with Fred. And um, I remember one day I came in, I had all my samples in, and he worked out of the Fresno plant for a while 
he would kind of go between series, which was south of Modesto and in Fresno. And uh, I remember one time I had turned everything in. And I was trying to get back to my apartment. We were having a party that night. I was uh, had a couple of roommates, and uh, we worked out of these trailers. So Fred uh, says, "Hey, Cabral, come here." So I went inside, and he tossed me the keys to like a brand new XJ12 Jaguar, and said, "Hey, go gas up and wash my car." And I'm like, "Oh, you know, I was trying to get out of there." And I was at least 30 minutes from the nearest gas station and car wash. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm going to stay on the clock. I'm not punching out. And I got in the car and um, drove it pretty fast to Fresno. I think I got it up close to 100 miles an hour. And he had a phone in the car at the time. So I called my roommates and said, hey, I'm going to be late. And they're like, well, where are you at? And I'm like, well, I'm driving down Central Avenue, just about to cross Mountain View or one of the cross streets, uh, doing about 100 miles an hour in a brand new XJ12. And they were like, no way, bring the car by the apartment. And I'm like, no, I, I don't think Fred would uh, would uh, take too fancy to that. So he, uh, I got back there, tossed him the keys back and, you know, so working with Fred, you know, for me, I didn't have a lot of day-to-day -day interaction with him, but I really did see a lot of, or witnessed a lot of brilliance in his, uh, leadership at Bronco Wine Company. He had a vision of what he wanted to do, and I think he still does it and makes no bones about it. Doesn't apologize to anybody. Certainly a springboard for you. It was, you know, it was, uh, it was a great job, you know, but I got bored of, you know, crushing 1,500 tons a day. And I had old roommates and classmates that were making wine up in Napa and Sonoma. And I'd go up there sometimes on long weekends and, you know, sleep on their couch. And we'd go out wine tasting and barrel tasting. And they'd show me these vineyards, you know, and they were showing me blocks. Well, here's three acres of this. And I'm like, I think the smallest block I check is 45 acres. I mean, they were just big, massive ranches down in the San Joaquin Valley. And I just became more and more interested in the more we tasted, just in the process and in those wines. So finally, in 1986, the union struck over a labor deal. And we had to hire a bunch of scab labor, which was actually, looking back, was good because I got to actually run equipment and I had to train people on why we were doing things and how we did things. But it was the super long hours and just very uh, draining on your physically on your body and mentally, keeping track of everything. And I, after that, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, this isn't fun. And uh, I applied to 20 wineries in Sonoma County, just blind applications, and 20 wineries in Napa County. And I think I got maybe two letters, three letters back. And a couple of them were harvest jobs. And then Deloach Vineyards in Santa Rosa had a, an assistant winemaker job. And so I went up there and interviewed, and, and that's when Randy Ullum hired me in late 86. I think I started in something like February of 87. What was that like? That was great, because all of a sudden now my biggest tank, my smallest tank at Vidal was 52,000 gallons, and we only had four of those. So the next smallest size was 105,000 gallons. The largest tank at Deloach at the time, I think, was 3,000 gallons. And we had a lot of small porta tanks, 250 gallons, kegs, barrels. And then I drove forklift. I got to do everything, run bottling lines, crushers, presses. And I did that for six years. And we, we grew the brand from about 50,000 cases in sales to about 150,000 cases in six years. 
and uh, they probably liked you because you could do that kind of volume. They yeah, were like, this is somebody we can grow the company with. This is a guy who can do serious volume if he needs. Yeah, to. I wasn't afraid to. Uh, I wasn't afraid to do volume. I just learned that the quality of the grapes really kind of d- determined the quality of the wine. Randy was probably one of the most influential winemakers I ever worked for because oh, yeah? he was he he was just very meticulous in everything he did. We had to be super clean. He was he was a clean freak if you will. And I remember in college the professors telling us that, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to be out of your control when you get out there from you know, mother nature to labor forces, all kinds of things, but you can keep things clean. And you know, if you walk into a winery and it smells like a winery, there's something wrong. It shouldn't have moldy, musty, dirty smells because those can actually be absorbed into the wine. And Randy taught me a lot about sanitation and making sure that things were always kept clean. And then I was able to go out into these vineyards and, you know, learn about uh, how people were growing them. Cecil Deloach had invested in several estate vineyards around there. We were doing new plantings, different rootstocks, different clones. So it was really a fun and exciting time to be growing. After about six or seven years, it got to be, for me, a little much. It was, it was a lot uh, of volume for the quality we were trying to make. Um, I, at times, I felt like we couldn't get it all done in one day. And um, I wanted to go a little bit smaller. And that's when I went to work then for the Cundies in Sonoma Valley outside of Kenwood. And I got hired as the custom crush winemaker there. And this was the early 90s. So they had a little extra room in their facility and they were renting out. Right. They had built like a 200,000 case winery and they were only like a 20,000 case brand. And they had taken on about six or eight clients. And we started making wine actually for Bronco. Again, Mary Edwards was doing barrel ferments for the Laurier labels um, and a couple of other Bronco labels. Paul Hobbs made his first couple of vintages there, which was really cool. That's when I got to know Paul. And I just, I think the world of both of those two, I mean, definitely mentors. I learned a lot in those two years from both Mary and Paul. There was a guy named Lester Hardy, who was a consultant for Fritz Maytag. And he was making wines from the York Creek Vineyard that Fritz owned. Did barrel ferments for Steve McRosty one year. Uh, We were storing barrels for Kenwood, uh, Deerfield Ranch. So my job was to interface with these consultants or winemakers and make sure that we were taking care of their wines the way they thought the wine should be made. Not necessarily the way Cundy made wine or the way Bob Cabral thought wine should be made, but pretty rigorous, uh, detailed instructions of this is how we want our, our wines taken care of. And that's when I really learned that there are a lot of different ways to make wine and still get to the same endpoint. Extremes at that time, I can remember Mary using SO2, cultured yeast, um, very analytical, if you will. Um, not in a bad way, but this is how she kept track of things and how she measured things, uh, measured success. Paul Hobbs, you know, no SO2, just let it start fermenting when it starts fermenting you know, modify punch downs per extractions. His his wines were not very formulaic at all. And I saw him spend a lot of time tasting his wines, as well as Mary, too. And yet they still got to the same endpoint. I, I think they both set the standard uh, in, they made in wines. Wine. They yeah. made great wines. I think they ways. made great wines, yeah. 
Probably you saw some punch downs, probably saw some pump overs. Pump overs, yeah. We had a French intern one time that uh, was pumping over Cundi Petit Verdot into Paul Hobbs' Howl Mountain Cabernet. And uh, I'm glad I wasn't there that day. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't under like... my watch. but uh, And, you know, I, I was amazed at how calm and um, thoughtful Paul was when I know they broke the news to him and the Cundies were just sick to their stomach. I know they they felt really bad. And um, I think they sold him some fruit off of the Cundy Ranch. And, you know, I I know that everything got worked out because, you know, it wasn't like somebody had died. It was, you know, we, we made we you made know, a mistake. In, in intern, you know? Yeah. Well, it was kind of funny because Paul very much trusted this French intern. And, and so he... Um, you know, took a little pride in working with Paul's wines. And, and it was, I think he was just tired. I don't know why he made the mistake, but, um, you know, it you know, does. it's not the first time I've heard a story like that. I no. mean, it's definitely. Yeah, those kinds of things happen. And I think you just need to move on once they do happen because you can't go back. I mean, right. you're not, it's, like, it's yeah. blended. It's right, not, right. not going to change. It's in the soup. It's in the soup, exactly. That must have been kind of like, you know, you're talking about learning practically. That must have been a great way to look at different protocols side by side and be like oh i get it that's what absolutely plus we made a lot of different varietals at kendi i worked with syrah and movedra cab franc petite verdot malbec varying clones of chardonnay uh, we did dessert wines we had muscats um, it was just a lot of fun to sauvignon blanc simeon uh, the Cundy Ranch, uh, Kenny Brook, and Wildwood were just amazing, ma- amazing vineyards with varying soils all the way up from volcanic red clays to these really kind of rocky river bottom soils as you got down towards the bottom of the hills near the town of Kenwood. It was just amazing to see the differences in how you had to farm them literally block by block and, and how that could influence the flavor of the wines. You started to make some friendships in the business there. You met some people that were doing some real serious projects, and you're seeing how it's done differently. What happens next? A vineyard manager I had worked with at Deloach was working with a guy up in Dry Creek Valley, and he needed some help. He had some excess Chardonnay around, I want to say, 1993, maybe, 94, and asked just for some advice. And so uh, I was living up in Healdsburg at the time and commuting down to Kenwood. And I um, stopped by the winery after work one day. This was Alderbrook at the time. And the guy that owned the vineyards around it was going to make some Chardonnay. You know, was there a, how would we go about doing that? And they were going to make it there at Alderbrook. So I kind of laid out a a, a uh, set of directions and, you know, I said, you know, do you like oak? Do you, you know, how much do you want to spend? We can do a lot of different things here. And I think I ended up kind of, if you will, consulting, not being paid though. We probably made 20,000 gallons of Chardonnay that he was going to sell on the bulk market. And some of it was barrel fermented. We had a couple of smaller tanks that I tried these oak uh, pellets or, or tea bags. They were kind of some of those oak alternatives were starting to to come out. And I thought, what the heck, let's try these things and see what happens, you know. Um, he was going to sell the wine off to somebody else anyway. It wasn't like he was going to bottle it under his own label. I mean, so curiosity is kind of part of your thing. Yeah, exactly. And why not? You know, and I asked, I said, you know, I've never really done this before, but, you know, I've tasted wines. And, you know, I was in a research group and a couple of tasting groups. And I said, you know, would you mind if we tried this? And he was like, yeah, no, go for it. So after that vintage, the wine turned out really well, or George seemed to like it. And 
he approached me about doing a consulting gig full-time, paid consulting. So I went to the Kendys and said, you know, could I pick up a few extra bucks? I was also teaching um, basic winemaking at the local junior college on Wednesday nights. You know, just you're trying, you're not going to get rich being a winemaker. So I was trying to buy a house and my wife was where I got married in 95. So I was already living with my wife. We met in 91 and, you know, you're just trying to get ahead. So uh, I had a lot of energy, no kids and no money. So let's work and try and make some more money. So I approached the Kendys about it and they weren't overly thrilled about me, you know, consulting on the side with, with somebody else. So, um, you know, I told George, can't do it right now, you know, maybe sometime in the future. Well, then kind of things developed. He ended up buying Alderbrook Winery and then offered me the winemaker job. So I was no longer the assistant or the custom crush winemaker. And I thought, what the heck, let's give this a try. So I went back to the Kendys and just said, you know, I'm being offered the winemaker job. I, I love working here. I love you guys. But um, I want to take this chance and, you know, see how I do. And that was a great move for me. You know, I was very much unknown in the industry. and But now I was making the call, the picking calls. I was deciding the type of oak. You know, I had to build budgets. and. How old were you? little over 30 years old, so maybe 31, 32. So still a pretty young guy. Yeah, really, really young guy to be a winemaker. Because you yeah. had started young. Because I'd started young, absolutely. So to actually get kind of that head winemaker job at that age was, yeah, pretty um, unusual for the North Coast. You know, back when we were in college, back in the late 70s and early 80s, you could walk out of school and, you know, there just weren't that many wineries and there were a lot of startups and you could walk into a winemaker job because these there weren't as many winemakers uh, coming out of Davis or Fresno State. And that window closed pretty quickly in the mid-80s. And uh, there was a big rush of people. I can remember the Fresno State program, instead of 13 in the whole program, you know, they were graduating, you know, 20, 25 per class in the mid-80s. And I know they got bigger and then toned down again. And, and then there's always, you know, kind of the cycles of any, I think, occupation. So what was Alderbrook like? Alderbrook was where I was able to uh, really kind of put my thumbprint on the, the wine industry. And they were selling maybe four or 5,000 cases of wine. I had three seller guys working with me. And we grew the brand uh, because there was about 80 acres there. So we used to crush about 200 tons of Chardonnay and 100 tons of Sauvignon Blanc. And... Within three years, we were selling around twenty-five to 30,000 cases of wine. And George had hired a really good GM, a, a, an industry veteran, a guy named John McClellan. And he had contacts all around the U.S. and knew how to market wine. He'd spent years at Geyser Peak Winery. And we just built this, this team up. And I was making wines that were being heavily awarded in magazines. In fact, I think one of the greatest compliments that I ever got was we'd submitted a Zen to Robert Parker in the mid nineties. Uh, and I think he gave it like 91 or 92 points, which was definitely the gold standard. And you didn't get many of those when you broke 90, it was a big deal back in, in the nineties. That's what I remember Alderbrook for was Zen. Zen. Yeah. I, I'm, had this old vine, old Zen program that was probably 15,000 cases and they were big, rich, ripe, you know, good acidity, very balanced kind of wines. And uh, 
you know, Robert Parker had given the descriptors. And then his last sentence was, and who are these guys? So, you know, he really, I knew at that point, he, there was no bias that this was made by, uh, you know, an Andre Chelichev protege or somebody who, who had the pedigree or, or credentials in the North Coast. This was just somebody that was um, doing a good job of making wine. And he didn't know who I was. And, and that made me feel really good. Because you do build relationships with these writers over the years. And, you know, as much as I think they try to be unbiased, I, you know, I think they like certain styles. They taste wines that just make them happy. And so they're going to give good scores to them. And I, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So this went on for a few years and George was uh, making a lot of money and, and we had some differences in compensation and I decided to look for another job. And uh, a couple of big articles had come out on me in like Wine and Spirits magazine. I think Wine Spectator had written something about me in one of the columns. So I kind of let some of my suppliers know, barrel makers, um, oh, that's you know, a good president, way to go about and, and just that, you know, I, I, I would channel. entertain. Yeah, I would entertain. And that's when uh, Jess Jackson, at Kendall Jackson, found out I was available. And um, they recruited me for the Hartford Court winemaker job. You know, Dan Goldfield was the director of winemaking at the time. And Dan is just a phenomenal Pinot and Chardonnay winemaker. And I learned a lot from him working under his direction. And we made some great wines in 96, 97, 98. You know, those, those were good Hartford Court vintages. And it was kind of funny because I have this great job at Hartford Court. I got a good rapport with Jess. And then out of the blue, I get a call from Burt Williams at Williams Salem to meet him at the winery one night. So I stop there after work and we spend two or three hours tasting. And at the end of the, um, at the end of the evening, he said, you know, I'd like to introduce you. We've sold the winery to John and Kathy Dyson of New York. And I'd like to introduce you to John. Um, he's looking for somebody to replace me. You know, I'm retiring. And I was like, well, I got a job, Bert. You know, I don't really, you know, kind of the crown jewel of the Kendall Jackson artisan and estates. And I said, I don't really, I'm not sure that I really need a job. And he said, well, you know, could you just meet him and talk to him? You, you don't have to see what he has to say. And, you know, you don't have to take the job. So over the next couple of weeks, we worked it out so that I happened to be on a marketing trip here in New York. And that's when I met John for breakfast one morning and kind of started the discussions on becoming the winemaker at William Salyam. But those are some important personalities that, that came through that picture. So what was that like working with Jess Jackson? I remember sitting down with Jess and tasting wines and, you know, he was making strategic business decisions. You know, he had like a 200-year plan. He, he shared this 200-year plan with me and I was like, I'm not sure I got a five-year plan. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. hard for me to just even figure out what I was going to do over the next couple of years. And he was making strategic business decisions, you know, for his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you know, really building a legacy early on in his career. He, I think his first harvest was maybe 1982 or 1983. You know, the place was barely 15 years old, and he he had this really dynamic company that was just exploding and exploded for literally a couple of decades, you know? 
He was just a wonderful man to taste wines with. He was so into the winemaking. Oh, he was a wine guy? Oh, he was, he, if you got his attention with a glass of wine, he looked you straight in the eye. He never broke eye contact and he wanted to know exactly what you had done to make that wine. He was fascinated with what we could do as winemakers. You know, I think that was a craft that he wished he had the talent for. And because he couldn't do it, he recruited, I think, some of the most outstanding winemakers in the in the country. Just some of the stellar winemakers in the North Coast that were really setting the standards and the trends for Napa and Sonoma counties. And Jess was employing these guys left and right. He always hired very thoughtful, hardworking winemakers. And I have to say, I, I remember sitting in rooms during tastings and looking around going, how did I end up here? Oh, really? Yeah, like well, well, it was just the who's who of what were my peers. I, I mean, people that I learned a lot from over the years. And it was um, very humbling to be a part of that group and to be a part of such a dynamic wine company that was make, shaking things up. Um, Left like- and right. I remember you went through that that uh, court battle with Gallo over a label. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody in the wine industry would ever fathom taking on Gallo, not just Jackson. You know, he was afraid of nobody, and he was determined in his spirit, in what he believed in, and he was going to seek his idea of justice no matter what. And I always admired him for that. Seems like when you're ready for the thing, whether you knew it or not, that card got played. It, it, being in the right place at the right time or believing what you believe and, and being honest, I think, and about what you do and working hard. I mean, you know, I wouldn't call myself a real um, academic person. I love learning. But, you know, a lot of grit and hard work will get you ahead as well. And in the industry, wine industry, it, it could really get you ahead. And I, I learned that by putting in the time and doing things right all of the time, you could really get ahead quickly because it was difficult to do. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. There would be 800 William Salyam or Kistler or Rocchioli brands. There aren't. There's like, like a dozen of them out there. And that's because these people have just literally dedicated their lives, their families' lives, the people that help grow the grapes' lives. It's a very small community that works in unison to craft these stellar wines. How do you think Burt Williams first became aware of you? Uh, I had joined their list when I was uh, in graduate school. So I, I met Bert and Ed in the, the mid-80s. I had a buddy that was working up at Dry Creek Vineyards, and he said, you, you got to try these Pinots. These are, and you know, I, I really wasn't um, too hot on California Pinot, and I know a lot of people still talk about the early Shalones and, you know, the Carneros Creeks, Bouchane, Acacia, and they were good wines. I think even the winemakers from those days, like Larry Brooks at, at Acacia, would say those probably weren't his best wines. They were good for the technology that we had and the knowledge that we had at that time, especially in grape growing, not just in the cellar, but how we were growing the grapes. So... When I first started tasting California Pinots, I was like, who would, who would buy these things? They were, I thought they were awful until I tried William Salyam. And that really kind of opened my eyes to, wow, this is a fascinating grape. Then I started taking money I didn't have <laughs> and buying Burgundy because people would go, oh, this is the closest thing to Burgundy. And I was like, okay, well, what's Burgundy taste like? 
Um, and back then, you could actually buy some Grand Cru and even Premier Cru between 50 and 100 bucks. I mean, if you spent 100 bucks, that was huge. Again, this is in the mid 80s. And I can remember, you know, paying $12 for a bottle of Allen Vineyard Pinot Noir. And I, I think today they sell it for about $90 a bottle. But at $12, oh my gosh, how am I going to afford this? So it was becoming familiar with those wines early on and kind of fascinated. I moved up the list because I would always buy all of my allocation. Couldn't afford it. And what I would do is start selling it off to my buddies and friends. And then, you know, for what I paid for them, if I was paying $12 a bottle or $18 a bottle, that's what I would sell it to them for. And then I would keep just a couple for myself. And I just did this over the years. And and when I moved up to Sonoma County, I can remember at Alderbrook, I made a lot of Sauvignon Blanc. And Ed Selliam would stop by and buy sometimes eight or 10 cases. And we'd sell it to him at the wholesale price. We had kind of an industry discount, if you will. So if anybody in the industry was buying your wines, you'd sell it to him at wholesale. And, and so he could come in and buy... Uh, Sauvignon Blanc for probably somewhere in the 48 to maybe $70 a case. And, uh, you know, at one point I asked Ed, you know, are you selling this out the back of your car? Because he was, he was also the wine buyer for Spears Market over in Forestville. And he said, no, I'm drinking it. And I'm like, you know, 10 cases is a lot. Of, I don't know that I went through 10 cases of Sauvignon Blanc in a year, let alone like a month. But, uh, it was kind of flattering, too, that the fact that they thought my wines were really fun to drink. So they were buying some Zins and, and uh, quite a bit of Sauvignon Blanc. So you had a good relationship. I did. And it was fun to get to know them because they were so respected within the Pinot community. So what was tasting with Bert Williams like? I mean, what was he like? Bert, you know, it's kind of funny is I think he had a public persona of being a little gruff, quiet, thoughtful, but maybe not friendly. And I think that was more of um, to maybe not get caught up in the celebrity status of the wine business. You know, that that's not why Bert made wine. That's not why he grew grapes. He, he just, you know, sincerely couldn't afford Burgundy. He loved Burgundy and thought, well, let's try making it. And he was a very well-read person. He had a two and a half, three hour bus ride down to San Francisco every day and back working at the um, San Francisco Chronicle in the press room. So he would bring books along with him, and you know he would be reading everything he could about winemaking, about burgundy, white burgundy, red burgundy, and then you know get off of work, ride the bus home, read some more, and then go out to the winery and make wine at night. In those first 10, 15 years, you know, they pretty much made wine at night. It wasn't something that was open during the day and, you know, you couldn't go taste there. Well, that's because nobody was there. They had day jobs. The winemaking thing was, you know, kind of a hobby night job. And I always respected the fact that Bert learned to make wine, I think, more by feel and touch than maybe qualitatively more so than analytically. You know, he ran a few analysis. He... Yeah, I think he looked at some of the numbers, but very few wineries even back then. I think he had to have by law an ebulliometer to test the alcohols. But I'm not sure he he may have had a pH meter and tested the acid or would send something off to a lab once in a while just to find out. But he made a lot of wine by just taste and smell. 
And I think that made a huge difference on how he developed his palate and how he developed his style. So if I do this, it'll taste like that. If I do something like this, it'll smell like that. And that's a great way to learn to make wine. And what was your relationship with him? He decided that they were going to sell and then... Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because I wasn't too keen on on even interviewing. And then after meeting John Dyson, things happened really fast. They made me an offer and I still wasn't too sure about it. I was reassured that Burt Williams was going to hit a five-year consulting agreement along with the sale. And so I thought to myself, you know, I was 34, 35 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, you know, I thought if I worked five years under Burt Williams, you know, I could probably choose where I I wanted to move next. And you got to remember up until that point, I'd never worked any place more than maybe four or five vintages. Deloach was, I think, six vintages. So I was moving around a lot just to learn new things. And you know, I can say I'm a little bit of a restless soul and I don't like having moss grow underneath my feet and I'm always looking for the next challenge and I wanted to learn more. I wanted to experiment and and do things. So I thought, what the heck, I would get to work with some of the best vineyards in, in California, if not in North America, Pinot Vineyards. And that was really the kicker. I, I saw stars in, in that I got to work with Rocchioli I got to work with Hirsch. As I got to work with as vineyards. Yeah. Precious Mountain, Allen, you know, these wines that you just nobody you were on wait list. Uh, uh wait list on wait list to get grapes, you know. You you'd be lucky in your lifetime to get to work with them at, at some point at another facility. So I thought let's give it a try. Bird'll be there for 5 years. You know, if it's not working out, I'll go, you know. I wasn't afraid to go find another job. That that never really prevented me from moving on. And um, so I accepted the job, accepted the position, which was interesting. You know, um, looking back now and having spent seven, I I did 17 vintages there. Bert had had just done 17 vintages, so 81 through 97. And as I was finishing the uh, 96s, bottling those wines, and then blending the 97s, you know, Bert, was um, not around as much as I thought he would be. And I kind of felt like I was a little bit left on my, more on my own than I was prepared for. And it, and it wasn't because I think Bert uh, was upset with me or upset with Dyson. I think it was just very personal and very painful to kind of give up your, your, um, your baby, you put so much heart and soul into these things, and his name's on the label. You know, my departure after 17 years was emotionally painful. It was something I needed to do, and I, I think change is good in life, and I don't regret doing it. But it was still an emotional thing, and not just for me, but for my family as well. My daughter was born during the 2001 vintage. We lived on the Allen Ranch. She grew up, she doesn't know anything but William Selliam, you know? And I think that a little bit of where you're at defines who you are, especially within your profession, whether you work at Pixar or, or Microsoft or, or a winery. So I think Bert may have lost a little bit of his identity, especially because his name was on the label, and that was very painful. So coming to the winery was not something that was, it wasn't a happy place for him at that point. He had made the decision to sell, you know, 
no regrets. Let's move on. So after about six, eight months, I think we got through the 98 vintage, he approached John Dyson and asked if he could be let out of his consulting agreement. And so we all sat down and tasted the wines. And he's like, you know, Bob's got a pretty good grip on these 98s. You know, you've tasted through them. You know, I'm not sure what I can do here. And I think, you know, and I I really don't want to be here kind of thing. He didn't come out and say that, but... Bert was very sweet in how he uh, approached the whole subject. So then he and John Dyson kind of went behind closed doors and discussed whatever they discussed. And, you know, John came out and told me that Bert was, you know, he was letting him out of the consulting agreement. So that made me a little nervous. You know, my security blanket was gone at that point. But again, I think it was good for me. Uh, being thrown into something and challenged a little bit more than I had uh, wanted to be going out of your comfort zone. Uh, I think we're all comfort creatures, and and that was a really good thing for me. And so you I probably thought it was a big act to follow. Like it know. was, but you know, it wasn't like people. People would say, "Boy, those are big shoes to fill," and I'm like, "I'm not here to fill anybody's shoes. I'm just trying to make the best wine I can." And um, you know, Burt's wines are Burt's wines, and these are going to be my wines, and I hope you like them both, kind of thing. I didn't really feel like I had to fill Burt's shoes. That that was one thing. I, I just felt like I had to make great wine, whatever that vision was. And, you know, you I, I've said it before, I, you know, what motives, some, somebody asked me many years ago what motivates me, and it's fear, fear of failure. You know, I make wine <laughs> out of fear of failure. And how do you um, prevent failure? You do everything right all the time. And that means a lot of sacrifice. You miss birthdays and anniversaries and parties and events in your life that um, hopefully you have no regrets over. Um, but those are events that you do have to omit, omit and sacrifice, I think, to to make these kind of wines. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So what were some of the first realizations that you had about those vineyard sources? I mean, you're there, you're in the winery. You know, it was all a kind of a learning experience for me. I, you know, I knew kind of what Rocchioli needed, Riverblock needed to taste like and Hirsch and, you know, spending time out in the vineyards, you would taste the grapes during the growing season, especially after they turned Verasion, so they had some sugar in them. You'd start tasting them and, you know, look at the seeds and chew on the skins and, you know, taste the acids, you know, squeeze those berries in your mouth and try to get a feel for how they're maturing and how are the flavors changing. And then looking at previous picking parameters, which Bert had very meticulous notes. And I could go back and see that he typically picked these blocks between these dates or around these uh, maturity numbers. And I could start to hone in those. And then I knew, you know, if you let the sugar rise, you're going to have more alcohol. Or, you know, if you wait too long and there's a heat spike, you're going to lose a lot of acid. It was pretty common sense winemaking. You just tried to make the best judgment call you could at the time. Again, variables that equipment would fail on you, you'd have to get fixed. So you couldn't process for a couple of days or you had labor that didn't show up and you couldn't process for a couple days, or the grower couldn't get pickers, or they were picking so quickly for other wineries or themselves that they couldn't get to your blocks for three days. So you had to learn to adjust and and adapt to each of those curveballs that were thrown at you. And I think that's what really made me 
grow as a winemaker was was taking those one at a time and and solving the problem and and uh doing the best you can sounds like you did have a vision though of what these vineyards are supposed to taste like sure and then you know the william selliam style we used one barrel francois ferrer one yeast strain we had a proprietary william selliam yeast strain one malolactic strain varying amounts of new oak varying amounts of whole cluster where we would actually put maybe 15% up to 25% whole cluster on the bottom of the fermenters and then destem the rest of the fruit. All of those made little differences, but for the most part in, you know, not that I really like this term, but it was kind of cookbook winemaking. You know, whether I was making a $20 Pinot or a $100 Pinot, we did the exact same things. Nobody got preferential treatment and everything was treated the same. And the idea being that hopefully the true expression of either that vineyard site or that appellation would come through in the final product. And that sounds like DRC protocol inspired to use Francois Frere, Hope Absolutely. Or some new oak. And, and that was protocol, though, that Bert had already established. So I inherited that and I was told not to change it either. I was given explicit instructions by John Dyson that, you know, we want you to make wine exactly like Bert. I remember asking him, so why don't you just keep Bert? Because it's going to change. I mean, I can't, I'll do my best to get as close as I can. But, you know, my perception of tannin and his perception of tannin or alcohol or acid are different. That's what makes us unique individuals, much like all our thumbprints are are different or our eyes are all different. So um, he just kind of chuckled and and said, well, you know, do the best you can. And I said, that's, that was, what my new goal was to do the best I could and try to replicate wines that Bird had made. So how did you think that those vineyards tasted different? Like after you go through the winemaking, that's the same protocol. When you taste Hirsch, when you taste Allen, when you taste Rocchioli, what were you getting back? Oh, they, they really had different personalities. You know, Joe Rocchioli farmed not only his ranch, but also the Allen ranch right next door where our processing facility was. And um, Joe had planted a lot of the Allen ranch. So it was the same rootstocks, the same clones that he had used on his property. And the differences were huge. On the east side of West Side Road, like down by River Block in very heavy loam soils that drained well, um, there was gravel 30, 40 feet down. Uh, the vineyards would flood in the winter time, where there would be water over the tops of the vines while they were dormant. You know, I had these big, rich boysenberry, blackberry kind of flavors and aromas. And there was an earthiness and almost mushroom or forest floor kind of characteristics. And then that exact same clone and rootstock was planted a couple hundred yards across the street on, on the west side of West Side Road. At, on the Allen North Hill, and it was a little bit more gravelly soils, a little bit of red volcanic clays, different deposits on a hillside, and trellised pretty much the same way, farmed by the same guy, and you got these kind of rose petal, rose water, and strawberries, and cherries, and, you know, the tannins were very broad and fat, but not as thick, and it was a much prettier wine, or more feminine wine, whereas the Rocchioli River Block was more masculine. You kind of had to pick one of the two camps. And that astonished me that, you know, I could literally 30 seconds walk across the street, same clones, same rootstock, two different soils, two different wines. And 
that really solidified my belief that what was happening in the Cote de Nuit was true. You know, you could, that's, you could taste it in the wines. And people would ask me, how could you really, how could these four rows of Clos Vougeot be different than those four rows right next to it? But they were. Um, the soils changed. The winemaker was done differently. And, and you really did have a different product. And I feel like William Selim was one of the real key wineries that brought Russian River to prominence and then also Sonoma Coast. Like it was one of the first to really say, oh, Sonoma Coast, good for Pinot, I feel like. Absolutely. Bert started buying grapes from David Hirsch out on the Sonoma Coast and from the Suma Vineyard out near Coastlands. Coastlands, when that was planted in the uh, late 80s, they started producing fruit, I believe, around 92, 93 Bert was definitely one of the pioneers to start making uh, Pinots from out there. Steve Kissler was doing a little bit of that as well. But Sonoma Coast, nobody really knew Sonoma Coast. And I think they were still learning uh, what worked and what didn't work. And not all those vintages were great. But when they were good, they were great. And I, I always like to say in the Russian River Valley, if you're making the investment in a vineyard in the Russian River Valley you're going to have probably three years, four years that you're going to make just stellar wines. And then you're going to have maybe six more years, six or seven years, that they're going to be really good wines that you farm. But you're going to get a crop every year. Out on the Sonoma Coast during that same 10-year period, because of the inclement weather and the influence of the Pacific Ocean being so close to the Pacific Ocean, you would probably lose two crops in those 10 years where you wouldn't pick a berry. Two to three of those vintages will probably be the best wines you ever made. And the rest of them will be, again, solid vintages, but maybe not spectacular, but will define the Sonoma Coast. So if you were making that investment out there, yields were low. But at, at the time in the late 80s and early 90s, and I believe David Hirsch bought his ranch in the 70s, you know, land was cheap. You could buy 2,000 acres for 400 bucks an acre, um, not $100,000 in it planted acre now. So these guys were experimenting and I think having a lot of fun. Their failures, they dumped down the drain and the uh, successes they bottled and people went nuts over them. But that must put you in a unique position because there you are trying to figure out how you're supposed to interpret Sonoma Coast fruit and there's not a lot of people you can ask. Right. right. right? All, I, all I really had was um, the growers to work with and you know, the, having grown up in a grower family, I knew those were my real lifeline, the manager. So up at Hirsch, you know, if you didn't know Aver Otto, his lead guy, you don't know Hirsch Vineyard because Aver Otto was actually getting the work done and he was, uh, you know, able to do the timing and make it happen. And if you couldn't find David and you had questions, Aver Otto had the answers. And, uh, you know, and I think he was learning just like the rest of us. You're going to make mistakes, and you learn from those, and, and again, avoid doing that in the future. William Selim, a lot of people talk about the reds, but there were some whites. Uh, Bert was making a little bit of Chardonnay. I know Gail Selim, Ed's wife, loved Chardonnay. So, yeah, they did a few barrel ferments, primarily from the Allen Vineyards. That was some of the first barrel ferments, and they used to pretty much drink it all, and then they started doing a few more, and then they started selling it to folks. We expanded that when I got there, definitely. We, I looked for other sites. We were making Hirsch Vineyard Chardonnay. Hawk Hill was a new vineyard that we acquired some fruit from in 1999. And then in 2000, 
We made some Chardonnay from Charlie Heinz Ranch out in Occidental. So very cold sites, which was tough because you were constantly fighting Botrytis. And Chardonnay tends to mature a few weeks later than Pinot on the same site. The first William Selliam Estate Vineyard out at Drake near Guerneville, uh, there were a little over two acres. It was like 2.18 acres of uh, Chardonnay planted out there. So we had an estate Chardonnay that actually got blended. I would declassify barrels from all of those vineyards and just make a Russian River blend. And we kind of gave up on that, or I made a single vineyard, I think in 2006 from the Drake Estate. And after that, pretty much most of the barrels made it into the... Uh, into the blends. And if they didn't, it was like the Pinots. We bulked them out to somebody else. And you did some Chenin Blanc. We did. During the construction of the new winery at the Litton Estate, John and I were drinking these old Domaine de Beaumards from the Loire Valley. So, you know, 10-year-old Chenin Blancs. And I was fascinated. I didn't know much about them until it was John that said, have you ever had these before? And I think we were at the farmhouse out on River Road in Forestville having dinner one night. And I said, no, let's, you know, let's try this. And I was just blown away that you could be drinking a 10-year-old Chenin Blanc and just the flavors and the complexity and how well it went with food. So John said he had some Chenin Blanc down at Vista Verde up on this hill that we called Limestone Ridge. And I started making Chenin Blanc, I believe, in 2006. And the 2006 and 2007... I was picking them too ripe. I didn't like the way the product had turned out. It was only a couple tons, so I ended up bulking those wines out, sold them to somebody else. And by 2008, I had kind of honed in. I was doing half barrel ferment, half stainless steel. And I think we did bottle the 2008, but it was primarily barrel fermented, neutral barrels, like 10-year-old barrels. And then I bought a concrete egg. And that's how I started fermenting it in that. So then the next vintage, either 2008 or 2009, was half concrete, half stainless steel. And I only bottled the concrete egg portion and bulked out the rest. And then I bought another egg. And that was kind of, I, I think I finally bought a third egg in 2012. And that was the extent of the program. But the inspiration was to try and make a wine similar to Domaine de Beaumard Sauvignon. What did you learn along the way? I mean, besides the the vessel. What I learned on those first couple of vintages was that we were growing the grapes wrong. And I was getting extreme carbohydrate buildup without really getting any phenolic ripeness. So I was waiting till this stuff was 24, 25. That's when it tasted good. Yet I had alcohols. You know, I tried de-alking and, you know, I mean, you can do all that stuff. And I guess if you have to, you know then you do it. I'm not here to judge winemakers that de-alk or do any of that. I think technology is beautiful, and that's why you don't find bad, bad wines. I, they may not be great, but they're not spoiled. They don't have high VAs. They're not, you know, as dirty as what we used to drink even in the 90s sometimes. You know, people can take the VA out of it. So I tried some dealk experiments on it and didn't like it. So I, again, bulked the wine out. So I said, okay, let's go back to the source. And we started working with the vineyard manager, McGill, down at Vista Verde. And I approached him and said, what if we start limiting canopy? And I went back and reread Richard Smart's Sunlight into Wine. 
And his whole theory was that you had so many square meters of leaf area per kilo of fruit should produce, you know, a certain quality. And he was pushing more in the higher tonnage, too, because it needed to be economical for the farmers. You can't, especially academics have uh, sometimes a hard time because they're funded usually by the larger wineries. I mean, you know, William Siam didn't have a budget to give to research at UC Davis or Massey University or Adelaide University. So, you know, they rely on the big companies like Pinfolds or Gallo or Kendall Jackson. And so, rightfully so, they're trying to do research that somewhat benefits them as well. So I said, what if we started taking the canopy down by either hedging or limiting the amount of leaves and taking it down to one cluster and just trying to slow down the vine? Minimal water, maintain vine health, because I, I still like using products like after harvest. I'm a big believer of using fish emulsion in the drip irrigation to build up a lot of those micronutrients and then the flora in the root system, in the soils around the roots. So we started hedging a few rows and we, you know, we, there was enough product there or enough vineyard land there that what I didn't take just went into like a mixed white load to somebody big, maybe a Constellation brand or something like that. So there wasn't a lot of pressure to get it right because we had expensive land, expensive grapes. John was very, John Dyson was very open to letting McGill and I pretty much, you know, if we could provide him with a thoughtful way of doing this and what we were trying to achieve, John knew enough about viticulture to just say, yeah, you know, that, that sounds good to me. So we started taking the canopy down and by, again, about 2008, uh, we were, what we had kind of settled on was eight to 10 leaves on a cane per cluster. And what that allowed us was the grapes to mature where you saw seeds that were very dark and brown, like you would find in 25 or 26 brick Chardonnay, yet the bricks was only 21, 21 and a half. The skins were nice and golden. They weren't green. The flavors weren't sour. They were, but there was a tartness to it and a little bit of that verve to the wine. So we started picking at like 21, 21 and a half, and we would end up with uh, natural alcohols of 12, 8, 13, 2, which was a much more balanced wine. And that's kind of what we settled on to after a while. And we would have to do a lot of uh, shoot thinning because every time you clip the foliage, it kind of sends the vine into a hormonal imbalance and it wants to grow again. You know, a, a vine's primary goal is to reproduce and, and survive. That's why it's producing a crop every year. It's propagation uh, and survival. And that's what any plant is doing, you know, Almond trees produce the nuts, uh, peach trees the fruit, you know, and hopefully there's nice sweet fruit that birds will then spread those seeds. So we learned that uh, you could get this really, really ripe flavors without huge alcohols. And I think that made a big difference starting about the 2009-10. I think the 2011 is probably one of the best vintages that we made primarily because it was just so cold that year. So we, we replicated more of the weather patterns that you would find in the Loire Valley, which was a little atypical to California. Problem in California is we have lots of sunshine all summer long. doesn't rain. You know, it's very arid. Uh, we have to irrigate. And it's just, 
extremely different than most European growing areas, and especially in France. Did the experience of controlling ripeness kind of affect some of the, the vine growing otherwise? Well, I think the vines started to adapt to it, too, because they became used to... I, I think the vine finally realized it didn't need to set a big crop, and it didn't need to continue to send out extra shoots. So it didn't become a um, an issue after a while. We still had to manipulate the canopies. It wasn't going to shut down completely. But you started to learn that by little shots of water... It was more of kind of keeping, you were stressing those vines out a little bit, but not to the point where you, hopefully it wasn't long-term detriment to it, but we don't really know till it's been 20 or 30 years. So it, to me, it would be kind of interesting to find out where those vineyards are in, you know, 2030. Are they still producing and are they still producing the quality of fruit that we expect them to produce? So what happened with Bob Cabral after... 2025 there that was well how long was your career at that point uh i'd been at william siam uh 17 years and um you know i remember standing up in a vineyard uh precious mountain and during the 2012 vintage and i was pulling some samples in in one of the blocks and just reflecting a little bit i had turned 50 that year and uh you know i was spending a lot of time on the road my family was spending a lot of time on the road with me and I was having fun. Don't get me wrong. This was this was really good. We were making a lot of wine, and it was getting more and more difficult to, I think, hold up the standard, you know, the fear of failure. I had a, assistant winemakers that were um, leaving after three and four years to become winemaker. They wanted my job. And, th- and that was the kind of individual I wanted to hire. I really didn't want somebody that was going to be happy being my assistant their whole life. I, I wanted them to outthink me and outproduce. I wanted them to want my job. And they all moved on to become very successful at, at other places. And I think that's been as gratifying as any wine I've ever made. The fact that I've had these assistant winemakers come back to me and take me out to lunch and say, you know, I'd have never survived if I hadn't worked for you for those three years or five vintages. And, you know, at the time, sometimes I thought you were pretty tough on us. You know, you wanted it done right all the time. But now I get it. Now I know why you had us do this. And it was kind of great to see, to have an influence on somebody young and them come to the realization that this is really just what needs to be done. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean about it, but if we want to make 100-point wines, this is what you got to do. And we got to do it all the time. And that was a gratifying thing. So I'm kind of reflecting back. My daughter was maybe 12, 11 or 12 at the time. And I realized I was missing a little bit of her life. It seemed like more frequently I was um, missing school functions or I was late to basketball games or, or activities that were a part of her life. And only having one child, knowing that you know they're only with you really for a fairly short period of time. And as I walked down the row and I, I thought about that, so I was kind of missing Paige's life. And then I, and, you know, I was missing a little bit of my relationship and my life with Heather, my wife of 20 years. And she'd thrown me this great 50th birthday party. I mean, there must have been 150 people there. We had it out at the winery and the whole winery staff. And Lord knows how much wine we consumed that night. I, maybe close to a pallet between everybody. And, and it was just a wonderful time. And to, to know that you had those kinds of friends and, and, and acquaintances that you had met over the years that uh, felt it important enough to be at a, kind of a monumental birthday. 
for most people. I think 50 is something that a very reflective birthday. And then the real kicker was, as I continued to pull samples, was I realized I was missing a little bit of my life. And I was kind of just on go. And I wasn't, I was having fun and I was doing a lot of fun things, but I, I wasn't being mindful of my time and I wasn't being mindful of other people's time. And I felt like I was a bit on a hamster wheel that was spinning so fast that I couldn't slow it down. Uh, the inertia was going so much that I needed to jump off. And I had discussions with John Dyson about it. And we talked about divvying duties up to other people and how, how do we relieve some of this. And he was very, very thoughtful about helping me do that. He knew that my incentive contract was going to end in 2014. He came back with a, like a 10-year, you know, let's do this some more and, you know, you can make this much more money. And it, and it never really was about making money. It was about make, still making great wines. And, and I just wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do anymore. So I decided that I would just take that leap and jump off the hamster wheel and, and hopefully they could jump on or slow it down and keep the machine going. Um, that revelation came about mid-2013, and John and I said, okay, let's get through the 2013 harvest. We'll keep setting up you know, the staff and procedures and handing duties over so that we, we really don't want to alert anybody at this point because we don't, we don't want to kind of shake things up. And I, I didn't want people to be upset about it and, you know. But by about February of 2014, John said, okay, you know, we've kind of done the first phase of this project. Let's do the second phase, which would be now to announce it. You're going to leave. So the staff, we went to the staff and we announced it one day when he was out there. And, you know, I think a few people were kind of shocked. And I told them that, you know, I was still going to be around through 2014 and I, I was going to live in Healdsburg. I'm not going anywhere. And just out of professional courtesy for the, any of them, I would, if they had a question about anything, I would, wouldn't hesitate to answer those phone calls. And um, by about July of 2014, then it was decided that he would let the, the winemaking staff, Jeff Mangahas was the winemaker and the staff, you know, go through harvest, finish the growing season and go through harvest while I was still on the payroll and in a consultory role and um, see how they, they did. So, you know, I was asked to step away maybe a little bit sooner than I had anticipated. I was a little um, caught off guard by not being able to crush grapes, but I completely understand why they needed to do that. And um, that's when you start to really think about how you're emotionally attached. And I think that's where, when we talked about Burt Williams earlier, that, that those revelations came because it is an emotional departure at that point where you're not going, I didn't have a place to go anymore. You know, I would get up in the morning and for those first couple of weeks, I kind of felt like a little kid that, you know, was lost and I needed somebody to guide me to the next place. So that went on for a couple of weeks. I planted a little vineyard at my house. You know, you have all this energy and time on your hands. And then I started looking and, you know, it had already been announced that I was leaving. So I was already entertaining offers from other people. And um, by about this time, I was meeting with Bill Price of Three Sticks on and off over every couple of weeks or so. And the, the conversations just led to the point where I felt we were on the same path. 
we had similar goals. Uh, I think Bill is an amazing person. Uh, I think he lives his life the way we'd all like to live our life. And, um, you know, is very mindful of people's time and that, that those sacrifices that we do to make products like this really do need to be acknowledged and um, recognized in, in many different ways, where, whether it be verbally or monetarily or, or emotionally. So we ended up making a deal, and uh, I would come aboard. Don Van Sovereign was retiring, and um, that's kind of where we're at right now. My first harvest was this past August and September, and uh, Ryan Pritchard was brought on as my assistant. I'd worked with Ryan at William Sullivan back in 2008, and I just I couldn't have a better right-hand guy that I hope I can teach more than I've ever taught to any of my my uh, assistants. And, you know, I really would like to see Ryan help build this brand and ultimately become the future of Three Sticks. Not that I'm going to step down or walk away, but I want him to be able to be fulfilled within his career goals as well. That feels like it was happened for you several times in your own career. Like an older person brought you through and took you under the wing and gave you an opportunity going all the way back to Bronco. Absolutely. And, and I think that's kind of, <clears throat> if you will, the circle of life. You know, I think you, you have to train and educate and teach that, that younger generation so they can continue on. And, you know, whether it be in um, politics or oil exploration or winemaking. So what was the 2015 harvest like for you? 2015 was just a lot of fun because I was able to kind of finish the book on William Selliam. I It wasn't even really a new chapter. I got to finally close the book and, and this was the end. And that felt good to be able to put that behind me and be okay with it and to really start writing the new prelogue to the next book. And so I was started getting out into new vineyards that I'd never worked with. You know, I'm tasting wines that I have to blend to this kind of style. And, and this is what we think three sticks should taste like. What kind of barrels are we going to use? I, you know, Bill has just given us complete artistic freedom. And that was really, really important and something that I wanted to be able to do was, was have a little bit more artistic freedom. Because you had been kind of shoehorned into the William Selwyn protocol. Yeah, I don't know if I was shoehorned, but I was asked to try to replicate something here. It's, what is your vision, Bob? You know, these are the kind of wines I like to drink. And I try to do a lot of tasting with Bill because ultimately, right now, I'm making wines for Bill and I. Wines I like to drink and wines that Bill likes to drink. And I'm trying to teach Ryan that if you do, you know, these things and these sequences, and, and winemaking isn't about just performing the operation, but it's the sequence of the operation. And Ryan's very uh, methodical and thoughtful in his process that he gets this. And uh, 2015, very low crops, so the quantity wasn't there. But over my 36 years, I would give up quantity over quality any day. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of some of the vineyards we had in 2005, where on the coast, Sonoma Coast, I had four vineyards that we pulled like a grand total of 13 tons in 2005. Those same vineyards in 2006, we pulled 62 tons. 
and none of those vineyards were over two and a half ton to the acre. So it kind of tells you how little there was in 2005. Again, in 2015, we had vineyard blocks that were off, you know, 40, 50, 60%, but really good textures and flavors and concentration. I mean, these are some of the darkest wines I think I've made across the board. You know, I think these wines, if you didn't panic during a couple of the heat spells and you let the vines recover and you picked, you were mindful about your picking, that you're going to make some really great wines. I'm, I'm excited about this vintage and maybe I'm overly excited because it's all new to me. Bob Cabral sees a sequence in good winemaking and a sequence in a good winemaking career. Thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Bob Cabral of Three Sticks Winery in Sonoma. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.